You're listening to You Had to Be There, a dark comedy podcast about death, dying, and what comes next. Our show features disturbing and potentially offensive content, so it may not be appropriate for listeners under the age of 18. Crude and explicit language is a guarantee. For a heads up on touchy subjects, trigger warnings for survivors, and minute markers for skipping the ugly parts, pause here to check the episode description before jumping in. If you do need to skip this week's discussion, we totally understand. Don't forget to check in next time, and if you're good to go, it's time for the shit show. Welcome to You Had to Be There, episode five. Wow! Wow! So, Cheyenne. Yes, Kimmy. Guess what's up? What? Our fucking merch. (gasps) Woo! What kind of merch do we have? Well, we've got some t-shirts. And then since it's getting a little bit brisk, we got some pullover hoodies. Ooh. And then for you coffee or tea drinkers, we've got a mug, which it's like it's one of those magic mugs that is black and then it gets hot and then it gets bloody. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And also laptop stickers, because why not? Woo woo. Woo. So where do people go to find this fabulous merchandise? Well, we have our very own Etsy shop. So, you know, yhtbt.etsy.com. <laughs> so, when That's pretty cool shit, brah. Fuck yeah, man. What's hot and new in your life, Kimmy? Um, nothing. It's actually very frigid, specifically in my house, because my heater is not turning on. So, <laughs> you know. All right, well, that, gosh, that just sounds heartwarming. It's the opposite. <laughs> but let me tell you what I saw on the internet this past week. A Japanese YouTuber, after collecting all of his nail clippings for a good year, decided to turn them into an engagement ring. No. No. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. No. It 100% happened. There's video, man. Why? Uh, I don't, I don't actually know. How many fucking clippings does it take to make a ring? A year's worth. That's, no. How big is the ring? It's, it's an engagement sized ring. Can you show me this ring? I need to see it. All right. Fucking here you go right now. I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't, <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to click on it. I don't like it already. I'll watch it with you. Man makes diamond from his fingernails. If this looks cooler than the really grotesque image in my head, I'm actually going to be a little bit fucking mad. <laughs> oh my god why is the internet terrible i like this man makes diamond right air quotes diamond as if diamond. we were somehow gonna be like whoa <laughs> bro can you make diamonds with your nasty ass fucking fingernail clippings uh how did you even find this reddit oh my god reddit tells me everything all right so he he clips all his fingernails, right? Now he's using a bullet blender, like a tabletop food processor, to grind them into a fine powder. This is like an instructional video, by the yeah, way. So... It's a little bit ruining my life. He's mixing it with water and fashioning it into a sort of disgusting paste. Yeah, man. Now he's uh, going to compress the mixture inside of a mold. Oh, a little droplet of nail water came out. he's putting it in the oven for 90 minutes specifically and then he oh 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 and he gets like a little lump of coal looking thing yeah which he is now pressing into a different mold 
and and now it comes out in the shape of a diamond and it i i don't understand does it stay it keeps its shape he made the silver ring by himself because of course the fuck he did probably made it out of his nutsack hairs uh, and he he i uh, uh how does it keep its shape like how does it not just fall apart i think that was the purpose of molding it yes but when he took out that um that little charcoal briquette thing out of the fucking microwave. It didn't exactly look as though it had shapely fortitude. Well, fuck, man. I don't know. Ask him. I, Send him an I email. Can't. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> well, thank you, Kimmy. Now every time I clip my nails, I'm going to feel like I'm wasting precious resources. Well, I mean, you are. Yeah, well. <laughs> also, another thing I happened to read this week, a Florida woman... Was oh, no. chasing her. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so a Florida woman was chasing her dog around a truck stop petting zoo, which is apparently a thing uh, in Louisiana. <laughs> and whilst chasing her dog, she found herself in the camel enclosure. And I guess no. as a sort of defense mechanism, the camel, weighing a solid 600 pounds, sat no. on the woman. No. Sat on her. <laughs> They're supposed to spit. But wait, there's more. To, to get the camel off of her, she then bit his testicles. <gasps> no. Yeah, man. Just chomped right on his testicles. I mean, I guess that's a shrewd survival tactic but also no <laughs> it happened okay now. fine i applaud i applaud i applaud <laughs> florida woman for her um uh, her quick wit in times uh-huh. of dire distress uh 40 points to slytherin <laughs> congratulations ma'am i mean i i guess <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh man. So yeah, that's that's what I read this week on the internet. Ugh. You need to stay off the internet. How am I going to do that? I don't know. I couldn't do it. <laughs> like this, right? <laughs> Every time like I the... say I'm sick of the internet, I'm like, okay, let's go check that Facebook. Let's see what's going on now. <laughs> yeah, let's go see what else I hate today. See, that's kind of why I'm on Reddit cuz like Facebook kind of Oh my god, Cheyenne. Let me tell you what happened on Facebook today. Okay. There was a post that somebody made like fuck four days ago or some shit. And it basically said, um, something to the tune of don't fake it till you make it, blah, 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 that's terrible advice, blah, 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 blah. So I commented and I was like, actually, it's pretty sound advice. I just want to say really quickly, I'm very proud of you for starting the sentence with actually. Uh, actually, I always do that. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I do as soon as I'm like, put on my internet cunt hat right (laughs) excelsior (laughs) so anyways i say uh actually it's pretty sound advice and backed by psychological research because when you fake it you are conditioning your brain to produce the happy chemicals that whatever situation you're going through is robbing you of now let me tell you what this guy said you're never gonna fucking guess what this guy said this guy (laughs) His only fucking comment was, you must be a Democrat. What? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking what? Okay. 
Hold on. I have one, too, from earlier this week. I joined a Facebook group. It's like a group where we pretend to be boomers and, like, make fun of them or whatever. <laughs> okay, boomer. And uh, at first, I just I just joined it because I had seen some of their sample memes, and I was like, I'm about that. Let me get in. And uh, they do a feature called um, uh, Boomers in the Wild. <laughs> so, like, whenever you run into a boomer on Facebook who's just being a huge-ass dick, you're supposed to take a screenshot and then, like, cover up their name and their face and then share right. it to the wall. And some of them are really funny. And then I accidentally walked into a boomer trap. Oh no! And got to take a got to take a screenshot. So one of my friends reposted that meme that's going around. That's like um, maybe a system of legislature that was. Uh, cooked up by colonial white slave owners or something isn't the best system of government just there's some sort of thing on facebook going around that's to that tune right Mm -hmm. and uh one of my friends had had reblogged it and then this uh douche and a half comes in and it's almost like he reached into a fishbowl that had little pieces of paper on it where all of like the most basic tired, upsettingly, ignorantly white shit you could possibly say was written on every piece of paper. And he was like, which one am I pulling out today? (laughs) And he pulled out this winner. Um, except the first slave owners were black. The first slaves were white. Oh my god. And then so I commented, just to be cunty, (laughs) and I commented back and said, congratulations, you just solved racism. What are you going to do next, sir? (laughs) And then then he said, he's like, celebrate your indoctrination. Did you get a trophy too? By the way, what is racism? In your own words. And please note references. Oh. I know! My god. (laughs) So then I I literally I zoomed in on his profile picture to make sure he was absolutely as old as I thought he was because I thought if this is someone my age or younger is it possible that they're being deliberately sarcastic and I'm missing the tone or is this person serious because that's how dumb it had gotten so I realized he was serious and then I just said I'm sorry I can't hear you over the deafening roar of my left wing vagina <laughs> <laughs> After which I promptly dropped the mic and moonwalked backward out of the room. Facebook is pretty much the worst. <laughs> God. People huh. on Facebook, I swear to God. <laughs> it's terrible. It, it is, man. It fucking is. That being said, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com <laughs> backslash you had to be there pod. That's right. Don't forget to leave us a review. We love you guys. <laughs> Woo! Woo! All right, before we actually get started, I actually want to give a quick shout out to my buddy Malachi, who is turning 15 today, I believe. So happy birthday, Malachi, if you ever actually listen to this. And that's all. You know what? Okay, so as long as that's what we're doing, this is <laughs> not only factual but relevant. Please join me in saying happy uh, shortly coming up birthday to my buddy Nate. Well, happy birthday, Nate. Happy birthday, Nate. So it's it's funny that you gave me a nice little segue to mention Nate because Karen and I, or my other friend, have come up with a, a new hashtag for our social circle, which is hashtag thanks, Nate. And it's something that you say at the end of sharing a terrible experience like we're just gonna blame everything on him oh, so okay. in- so instead of like instead of like blah blah economy blah blah deficit blah blah politics thanks obama now it's like i stubbed my toe thanks nate well and i will tell you why that is relevant in just a few seconds because it's part of my first bullet point <laughs> <laughs> so that as was convenient really as that i know <laughs> 
He's he's peeing himself with joy listening to this right now. So as you know, Kimmy, I'm a part of the, I was going to say a big part, but that's a debatable use of that word. So, but I am a part uh, of the punk rock community out here in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my closest friends right now are a part of that punk circle. I actually, when I got back into the punk scene after moving back to Arizona, I immediately made like 40 new friends. So I have a really awesome, intimate friend group of like 40 freaking people. God, apparently I'm doing something wrong. Jesus. Punk rock, man. Yes. <laughs> We do have a pretty rich uh, punk scene out here in Phoenix. We get to see a lot of really fantastic bands as they travel in and out of the Southwest. Some of them come out here just to be part of the scene for, you know, the length of one set before they move on. And the venue that I was helping with has actually uh, gotten a few bigger name bands to come out and hang out with us for a night, which has been really rewarding and fun and awesome. So all of that is only relevant as preamble because it draws me especially close to what I'm going to talk about tonight, and it's kind of a doozy as far as I am concerned. So I'm going to try to get through it properly, but also quickly because there is a lot to it. And, And it starts because the other night, Karen and I watched a movie because Nate told us to. And even though the experience gave me the immediate inspiration for today's discussion, I will never take a movie recommendation from Nate again because it ruined my life a little bit. So (laughs) thanks, Nate. Hashtag thanks, Nate. (laughs) Tonight, Kimmy, I'm going to tell you the story of the death of Brian Theodore Denneke. Let's do it. I know that name. And it is going to hurt your fucking feelings. Why do I already know that name, though? It's just, I'm not sure yet. Today we're traveling back in time to 1997 in Amarillo, Texas. Oh. And my new favorite thing to do is research crime stories that happened in Texas because I got a lot of the best narrative information for this from an article that was written by Pamela Koloff, which is the same woman who wrote the article that I used for the Aaron Caffey case. So she does a lot of this in the Texas Monthly, texasmonthly.com, and she writes really beautiful, intricately detailed narratives about true crime. So I actually left out a lot of things that she specifically said because I want the listeners to have an opportunity to go read her version because it's so fucking good. So texasmonthly.com slash articles slash the hyphen outsiders is where you can find that. I also used a BuzzFeed article that I'll explain the significance of as we move on. Wikipedia, a few different ways and weirdly enough, a couple of dictionary definition websites that will, it'll be obvious to you why I did that on purpose if you choose to watch the movie, which is called Bomb City and was released in 2018. So we're in Amarillo, Texas in 1997. I am 10 years old. You are 11. We don't understand what's going on, but shit's happening, Kimmy. Um, the Yellow Rose of Texas is located north of Lubbock in the panhandle of the great state of Texas. It spans 90.3 square miles of prairie land at the intersection of the I-27 and I-40 freeways. And in 1997, the population was roughly 170,352, which I only mentioned because Amarillo gets painted like a really small town when the story is discussed. But then I started comparing it to cities that I was more familiar with to get more perspective. And Phoenix, for example, is 517 square square miles, and in 2017 was home to 1.626 million residents, which sounds jarring, but my friends and I routinely complain about what a small world Phoenix is, so I've gained a much better perspective on just how small Amarillo probably feels. 
Uh, Amarillo is a meatpacking industry town, but it also gets another of its fun nicknames, a bomb city, so the name of the movie, for being home to the only nuclear weapons assembly and disassembly facility in the country, Pantex. You may be interested to make a stop along the I-40 as well for the purpose of having a look at the Cadillac Ranch, which is an art installation of old Cadillacs that have been upended and buried halfway into the soil. It's pretty cool looking. About fifty thousand times. (laughs) It's like an art project funded by an eccentric weird billionaire. It's I'm I'm about it. So I ended up doing a lot of reading about Amarillo to make sure I wasn't framing it as a Bible thumping conservative hellhole, as I think that that is the go to assessment for people who are not sons and daughters of the great state of Texas and might not know better. And in my research, I did find that while Amarillo seems to be enthusiastic about its citizens, keen to revitalize itself when the economy shifts, and invested in education. There was definitely a theme in the accounts of its citizens that Amarillo's cultural lifeblood is God, family, and football. And to go against that creed in 1997 was to be noticed for all of the wrong reasons. So there is some push and pull on the framing of Amarillo Tejas. Amarillo had, or slash still has, two high schools, Amarillo High and Tuscosa, and naturally they were football rivals. Football was a huge part of the culture, and its young players lived high on the social hog, admired and celebrated by their parents, teachers, and friends. The high school scene had its standard set of cliques, stoners, kickers, punks, jocks, etc., but with jocks sitting- (laughs) Right? (laughs) 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 Sexually active band geeks! So, in this in this school, though, the jock sat firmly at the top of the food chain, which I always think to be like a Hollywood perspective of how high school works, because I didn't have that experience. Nobody really sat at the top at my high school. Um, there was definitely some jockeying for position as far as, I don't know, like social seniority is concerned, but I didn't feel that vibe of like, oh my god, there goes that group of super popular kids. Like, nobody fucking, they didn't care. But then, you know, maybe we were all really high at the time, too. That's fair. I'm pretty certain I definitely had that experience in junior high. Not in high school because I went to that weird charter school, but but definitely in junior high. Junior high sucked. I I also went to a weirdly progressive high school, even though we had this reputation for being like the metal detectors and like helicopters high school where like every terrible thing ever happened. By the time I got there, a lot of that had been, you know, washed out of what was going on. It had, I don't know, like they had They'd actually reformed is what had happened, I guess. They made actual social progress within the school. And by the time I got there, we had an LGBTQ um, group. We had an LGBTQ alliances coalition thing. We had a Bruin Town, which was in any town offshoot that was named after our high school mascot, the Bruin. And so there was like this leadership diversity camp that you could go to that I went to sophomore, junior, and senior year, one year as a delegate and two years as a counselor. And in my senior year, I didn't even go there anymore and they still let me come. So by the time I got there, we were we were pretty rad. But I guess in other high schools in the country, it really does look like mean girls. Right. So whatever. Anyway, there is also an undercurrent of obsession with social status in terms of financial success. One local mother said, quote, Teenagers here pay a lot of attention to what your parents do, where you live, what name brand clothing you wear, what church you go to, what kind of car you drive. If you can't compete, you're an outcast. So we have these bored, entitled teenagers running wild, revved up on hormones and underage drinking, blowing off steam by looking for trouble. Western Street 
in Amarillo was a main drag for these kids as it was lined with fast food restaurants and convenience stores where they could congregate and find out what else the night had in store. And on the fringe of this routine were the misfits of Amarillo, the skaters, the rockers, and the punks, one of whom was a 13-year-old boy named Brian Theodore Denneke. Brian was the younger of two boys, born to Mike and Betty Denneke, Kansas natives who were a stainless steel cookware salesman and a photo processing lab owner, respectively. Brian and his older brother Jason were beloved by their parents, but when the boys started getting into Amarillo's punk scene, they became concerned. Brian had been a Boy Scout when he was younger, but had dropped out when his scoutmaster attempted to destroy his skateboard, as Brian had recently begun taking his skateboard with him everywhere he went. And uh, once his time was freed up by abandoning the Boy Scouts, he went in search of a new sense of belonging and found the punk scene and immediately began immersing himself in the fast-paced music, the grungier aesthetic, and the DIY mentality. Now, wait a minute. Why would this troop master try to destroy his skateboard? I guess... Brian had had it with him and the scoutmaster was trying to say, you know, you can't bring that or you can't have that. And Brian's like, well, this is how I get around. Like, this is literally transportation for me and I'm not going to get rid of it. And the scoutmaster's like, uh, no, look here, little kid, it's going to be like this. And I guess he like tried to throw it like out the door or out the window or something. And Brian protested rather aggressively because he understood that to be incredibly unfair and he wasn't going to stand for it yeah it was fuck that scoutmaster man so he had punk rock in his blood word <laughs> right I bet he went and kicked over a fucking trash can anarchically <laughs> so if you, if you look at the images i have of brian especially this one brian and pup where he's holding up a little baby puppy dog he just you can kind of see in his face he's he's that that sweet punk rock kid that we were all friends with when we were younger i have a few friends that remind me a lot of him and and so I started getting really sad as this research went on because I was trying really hard not to imagine Brian's life, the way Brian's life ended being the same end for my little punk rock friends who are just so pure. Right. So, but he just leaves We had that precious. exact same hair. I know. He's so precious with his blue mohawk and his little baby puppy. Yeah. Aw, he's a good kid. <laughs> um... So Brian began sporting spiked collars, leather jacket, tattoos, piercings, and a signature green mohawk that he kept up with Knox gelatin. I have never heard of that in my life. No? Oh, so like, okay, you know that really iconic scene in SLC Punk where Matthew Lillard is talking to his parents about his future and he's got that huge blue mohawk up? Mm -hmm. And it's like, he's like jumping around screaming, but his mohawk is like inexplicably flexible and kind of moving with him instead of falling apart. Mm -hmm. The filmmakers behind the scenes, they used Knox brand gelatin to achieve that, uh, that sort of that stability, that resistance to movement. And that's the best thing to put your hawk up with if you want it to be able to kind of go with you. Man, I legit always just use the got to be yep. spray. Yep, like, yep. I remember there was one time I had my hawk up and I was going to Kim's parents' house. Yeah, that's what we were doing. We were going to Kim's house and like I had to sit in the car sideways because if you recall, my hawk was much too long. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Bleep their names <laughs> out. Awkward. Do you remember when <laughs> was dating and he had that little VW Beetle? Uh-huh. And I, had, I would go places with them with like all... 11 inches of my hair up and yeah had to sit, i remember like, that shit <laughs> like cock-headed so that yeah. i could I just like it's cool i mean my neck's gonna be terrible for the rest of my life but it's fun i'm about it yeah man <laughs> it fucking 
Like, uh, it's awful. It fucking sucks. Anyway, so I, so I get to Kim's house, and I still got my hawk up. And I'm pretty certain this was the first time Kim's dad had seen me with the mohawk. And uh, Kim had this giant fucking pool, and he was like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen. And he, like, shoved me in the pool. My mohawk didn't go fucking anywhere. Nope. Like, it was drenched, but also still straight the fuck up. There is literally a can of got to be glued on the workbench in Sky's room right now because everybody has mohawks that need touching up in between days of not <laughs> taking them down. I used to come home from my, you know, my punk rock tirades out in the wild and take long ass bubble baths and just let like my mohawk dissolve as I laid in the right. water. It was amazing. Brian's older brother, Jason, was the more reserved of the two. And though he was also in the punk scene, he leaned more more into the Skins aesthetic and eventually became a member of the Bomb City Skins, which is a local chapter for the movement in Amarillo. I understand that there is a lot of confusion out there about what it means to be a skin in the punk rock community. I assure you, it is not a racist subculture. There is no weird white supremacist Nazism in the skin's aesthetic. That's not what it's about. Please do your research. They are a group of working class punk rock subset. That's it's it's working class. It's a certain set of values. It's not it's not like actual crazy skinhead Nazism, but that's what Jason was more into is he was more into the, the skin side of things. And Brian was more into sort of like the crust, like the gutter punk kind of thing. His parents, alarmed by his new look and circle of friends, were initially combative. In a particularly heated argument, they even tried to forcibly shave off his mohawk, if only to mute his appearance in some small way. Jesus. I know. Mike Dennehy said, quote, he had a real strong opinion that it shouldn't matter how he had his hair, how he dressed. Even though he was right in a theoretical sense, it didn't matter. We knew that society would judge him and that there would be consequences. So, although it, it kind of sounds at this point that his parents weren't on his side, their opposition to his new look and his new friends and his new lifestyle was rooted more in a desperate, a desperate concern for their sons and their welfare. And today, they display a black and white photograph of Brian in their living room with his signature mohawk in full fan. So they did love their boys. They were just, they were worried about how society would react to and treat them given their appearance. And it looks like, unfortunately, they were not off the mark. Right. As time went on and Brian's clear infatuation with the punk scene showed no signs of slowing down, Mike and Betty gave in to their son's bold refusal to fall in line. His father went on to say, quote, We thought that if we didn't accept him, we would lose him. You get to the point where you can keep battling with your children, but you realize you're not going to change them. Their fears were sadly justified, as Brian was often the target of aggression by the jocks in Amarillo, referred to as the White Hats, in reference to the the white caps they would wear bearing the names of Ivy League schools. So they're just these jockey assholes running around with Ivy League schools printed on their hats like, this is where I'm headed. Let me rub it in. That's gross. Yeah, I know. So they call them the white hats because fucking they're such a ugh. So, <laughs> so these white hacks white hacks ha the white hacks so yeah. these white hat motherfuckers would uh drive by and throw glass bottles at brian they would taunt him as he walked between school and home and they would launch insults at him like freak and faggot whenever they saw him sophomore year he finally reached his limit and retaliated while being actively taunted by throwing a rock at a fellow student's truck he was put on juvenile probation for the offense and subsequently dropped out of school earning a ged instead so at this point the system is making a 
clear declaration of where it stands in terms of who is at fault when Brian is involved in some sort of an assault. And so he was just like, well, fuck you, teacher. And uh, went and got his GED instead. Unfortunately, this kind of violence was not only constant, but Brian was not their only victim. Amarillo punks in general were often the victims of insults, bullying, and outright violence getting jumped in the streets when they walked alone. Confrontation became so typical that punk started making it a point to walk in pairs or groups and began carrying weapons like pocket knives and smiley chains, the latter of which was Brian's weapon of choice, a heavy chain link secured to his waist with a padlock that could easily be swung like a melee weapon in self-defense. At 17, Brian moved out of his parents' house and into an apartment above a punk club hardcore, uh, who's washing dishes to make money. Once he had enough money saved up from a dishwashing, he and his longtime girlfriend, Jennifer Hicks, packed up and hit the road with a stray dog that they'd taken in together. So the dog in that picture from the Google Drive is presumably that very same baby dog. Ow. Uh, they hitchhiked their way up and down the East Coast for four months, doing odd jobs, collecting cans, and dumpster diving to feed themselves. So this particular subculture of a subculture... Uh, is called gutter punks, um, or traveling punks, or train kids, or it just, there's kind of a, kind of depends on where you are regionally, I guess. I hear different people throw around different terms depending on who they're talking to. I have friends that do this. Uh, you know a couple of them. Most notably my friend Melody and her dude Vegas. They are traveling punks. They're on the road right now. And we've talked about her before. Yes, we have. So I'm pretty sure she's probably, oh no, yeah, I, I was complaining about how having to watch this movie on Facebook. I was so upset. And then Melody's like, oh, I showed that to Vegas. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't happy about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this uh, traveling thing, the only point of that is just that this traveling thing that Brian was doing was not a new and innovative idea. Punks had been doing this for years and Brian and Jennifer would just take in their turn. So they were only at it for four months, which is a relatively short stint. I have friends who do this just all of the time. They don't actually live anywhere. And so the big joke is that the road is their home. Uh, my buddies Melody and Vegas have a dog that they travel with. Coolest dog in the world. His name is Roadkill. And uh, sometimes when he's being a little little bitch ass and pissing me off, I remind him that he has no home. And then Melody covers his ears and says, oh, the road is his home. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> sometimes he's kind of being a bitch. Um, when they returned, Brian began working for Stanley Marsh 3. They always call him Stanley Marsh 3 in articles. I don't know if that's supposed to be a bastardization of him being the third. I thought it was a typo the first time I saw it, but whatever. He started working for Stanley Marsh 3 to construct the Dynamite Museum, a citywide urban art installation that repurposed old road signs to bear cryptic or just silly messages, like, you can't take the girl out of the city, or the road does not end. A display that can still be seen today. And earlier I mentioned that BuzzFeed article. And the points of mentioning that BuzzFeed article is that they have, um, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but they have a, a listicle that's like 25 of the best signs from the Dynamite Museum. And this is also the same eccentric billionaire or millionaire or whatever status he has that funded the um, Cadillac Ranch project. So Brian starts working for him, making money by doing something that looks so fun that I'm actually legit jealous because I never got to do anything like that when I was a little punk ass. In addition to helping Marsh with the collection and the repainting and the repurposing and the display of the signs, Brian was also tasked with going door to door to convince Amarillo residents to display the signs in their yards. He had natural ease and charisma, and despite his appearance, most people told him yes, no matter the odd request. 
And Marsh himself said, quote, he looked bizarre, but he could walk toward people with his hand out, grinning, and they would like him before he got to their front door. I called him Sunshine. He was boisterous, optimistic, fun, so Sunshine just stuck. Aww. I know. That's cute. It's darling. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I know there's, I've, I've met punks who had, who had crust names like, uh, you know, ball sack and fucking like vomit fate, just dumb bullshit, you know? And, but sunshine, that's so precious and wholesome. I'm about it. He also put a lot of work and money into the 8th Street House, which was a local punk squat and music venue that was covered from roof to foundation in graffiti, had illegal electricity, was furnished with found furniture, and was regularly inhabited by punks who had nowhere else to go. So I've lived in a punk squat. Um, in a few different times, I had to really deliberately avoid letting my own residence turn into a punk squat because it's really easy to let that happen. And uh, actually, when Sky moved in, one of the only real rules we gave her was, this is not a punk squat. Do not. I don't want to come out here and see like eight weirdos half dressed sleeping on the floor <laughs> with like half burnt out cigarettes between their fingers because they fell asleep in the middle. I don't want to see that shit. Tighten it up. So, but I've lived in places like this and it, they're always, they're always filthy because it's usually a bunch of teenagers who don't pick up after themselves and they don't clean. There's usually like one mother hen um, punk girl who really tries to keep everybody in ship shape, but it doesn't work. Never. I, I've literally brought like first aid kits, food, um, standard medications like aspirin and Neosporin and whatever the fuck. I've brought like whole care package supply kits to punk squats before and been like, okay, kids, this is what you need for boo-boos. This is what you need <laughs> when your stomach does the growly noise. This is what you need to wash your socks for the first time this month. And for the first week, they're always really gracious and enthusiastic but it fizzles out because the purpose of a punk house is for you know somewhere for you to abandon the constraints of the more civilized world that you had to leave behind either by force or choice so a lot of the time yeah there's kind of a a lazy grungy aesthetic to it but also a lot of the punk kids i know even the ones who live in squat houses are still really really hard-working fun-loving individuals who just happen to live in a house of ill repute. Those are brothels, Cheyenne. Uh, well, you know, hey, sometimes... <laughs> One and the same. The parties get weird, okay? So, <laughs> he regularly reached out to bands via good old-fashioned snail mail and telephone, encouraging them to make the stop on the I-40 to play at the 8th Street house, breathing new and inspiring life into the Amarillo punk scene that was made possible by this one teenager's relentless dedication to his small but close community of outcasts. So, Brian really did, like, he was a champion champion for sort of bolstering and strengthening the Amarillo punk scene. And even though like the I-40 is sort of the way that you would use to get back from, say, if you were a traveling band and you had just played in the Midwest somewhere, the I-40 would typically be the route that you took to get back to you know, California or to hit California next and go through like Albuquerque on the way or whatever the fuck. So it wasn't hard to get people that were going to pass by. It was just him, all this dedication, writing letters, making phone calls, trying to catch them at the right time. Hey, can you stop here on your way home? Like that's real ass dedication. I would not do that much work. Uh, so he would have been like a gem. So Brady Clark, a former Bomb City skin, said, quote, Brian's main goal, and he had saved a whole lot of money for it, was to start an all-ages place for bands, poetry, art, theater. He wanted to have a place where kids could hang out, be in their own element, and not get harassed by a bunch of drunk rednecks. He wanted to give everyone something constructive to do with their free time. So that's just... And this is like a 16-year-old kid at this point, so that's just... 
It touches my heart. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so though he was loved and respected by his own people, the White Hats never let up. Brian became such a frequent target of their aggression that his friends started to jokingly refer to him as Fist Magnet because, you know, he got punched so often. <laughs> That's fun. On the weekend of December 6, 1997, when Brian was 19 years old, he and some of his friends were outside of an IHOP on Western Street, that main drag for teenage shenanigans that we talked about in the beginning, when a confrontation broke out between them and a group of the White Hat Jocks. During the scrap, local football player Dustin Camp got his Cadillac's windshield broken when one of the other punks lobbed his collapsible police baton through the glass. Punks who witnessed the events of that day say that Dustin attempted to hit a few of them with his car before he drove off, but Camp denies this allegation. Dustin Camp was 17 at the time. He had a boyish face and was described as always smiling and was generally portrayed in a very positive light by friends and family, but he had a difficult time making the cut in terms of social status. He was a junior varsity football player who worked hard to be a better, bigger, stronger player, but never quite made it. Instead, he took on the role of the team clown, keeping the fellow players laughing. His parents parents, like most in Amarillo, were deeply invested in the team's success and attended every game. He wasn't old money like his teammates were, and that was kind of a big thing in Amarillo at the time. He drove a 15-year-old Cadillac instead of a new one, and he lived right on the edge of the affluent neighborhoods that his friends lived in, so he's literally on the fringe. But despite being a kid on the fringe himself, he was just as deep into the segregation of the jocks and the punk as everyone else in his social circle. After his windshield was broken, rumors began to circulate of a retaliation on the punks. The following weekend, December 12, Camp and his friends Rob Mansfield and Elise Thompson loaded into Camp's caddy and headed for the scene of the impending brawl. Typically, according to Elise, scraps like this didn't really amount to much and they often fizzled quickly, so she and Rob were not so worried at the beginning about how the night would inevitably end. That night, they parked across the street from the very same IHOP on Western Street to watch things unfold. A handful of punks had shown up to the fight, armed with the weapons they had taken to carrying whenever they walked the streets. They were severely out numbered with some accounts putting the White Hats number at as many as 40 to 50 teenagers. Jesus Christ. I know. When the fight started to reach an unusually violent apex, Elise thought Dustin would do the sensible thing and drive them home, away from the bedlam. However, when Dustin spotted his friend Andrew McCullough being taken on by some of the punks, he opted to drive his car across the street and toward the action. Elise said that this is the moment that he snapped. Brian mowed his caddy through the sea of tangled bodies, aiming for the punks. He managed to hit one of them, but with only enough forced to glance him off the hood of the car without any real injury. The punks started beating the car with their fists and their weapons in protest. Rob Mansfield demanded that Dustin drive away, which he seemed to be doing at first, but just before he would have exited the parking lot, he swung the caddy around and aimed the bumper in the direction of Brian Denneke. Spotting the oncoming headlights, Brian turned and struck the car with his smiley chain when it got too close. It wasn't enough to stop Dustin, however, who bore down on the gas pedal and said, I'm a ninja in my caddy, before barreling full force into Brian. What is what does that even mean? I don't know. Like, and everybody what? who discusses the case has to take pause on that. Because it's like, what the fuck does that even mean? What that's so chilling and gross and weird. What the fuck is yeah, that? Yeah, like what? I I don't know. I'm a ninja in my uh, caddy. I don't what a fucking psych. It is such a an awkward thing to say that even the line read in in the movie Bomb City, you have difficulty taking it seriously. If so, like if when you watch the movie, you don't know the details of the case first, you're like, oh, that was an awkward line read. Why'd they give that to that poor actor? What's he supposed to do with that? And you find out later that that's just what the fucking little asshole actually said. What the? F it's goddamn <laughs> weird. So 
That's Yeah, that's really weird. Brian's body rolled up onto the hood of the car before being sucked underneath by the force of the impact, crushed between the undercarriage and the cement as the caddy rolled up and over a parking median in its progress. Inside the car, Elise heard three sickly thuds as the car moved over the fallen Brian, and she recalls praying that the noise was the median itself and not actually Brian. As Dustin drove away, leaving Brian bloodied in the snow, he said, I bet he liked that one, just as a a raucous cheer rose up from the watching jocks. What the fuck? I know. So Ninja and my caddy, Betty liked that one. And then all of his friends fucking cheer after he runs this kid literally the fuck over. Like I can, I can, this isn't the right word, but like I can understand the one kid being a fucking psychopath. But for all these fucking jocks to be cheering like that, fuck all of them. They deserve to like be thrown in the goddamn ocean. Fuck every single one of them. That's disgusting. I know. I almost talked about the social phenomenon that's getting talked about right now called affluenza. What you're disgusted by, this whole like this entitled social elite, we're invincible bullshit. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, that's kind of the vein that moves in. So I encourage dear listeners to research the term affluenza if you're not already familiar because it gets used a lot when people talk about these jocks in this story. Um, Horrified, Brian's friends, brother, and girlfriend Jennifer converged on his mangled body, contorted and bleeding out in the snow. Jennifer remembers hearing him attempting to speak, but that his mouth was so full of blood and his teeth were broken, which made it impossible to hear his last words. His brother Jason held Brian in his arms as he died. God. On the highway, headed toward home, Dustin was quiet. From the back seat, Elise was finally finding her voice, having been overwhelmed with shock after what she'd just seen and felt. And through her sobs, she eventually asked the boys, what if he's dead? Before they separated, Dustin told the other two that they didn't have to go down with him. He promised, I'll tell them you weren't in the car. Elise, however, could not accept this as condolence and protested, but we were in the car. She recalls Rob agreeing with Dustin at first, telling Elise, I don't think you understand how serious this is. According to Elise, those were the words that finally seemed to illuminate the situation for Dustin, who began to sob hysterically, pounding his own head against the steering wheel. Dustin went home that night and went to sleep. Rob and Elise, however, decided that they needed to tell their parents what they had been a part of, and both teens were driven to the police station to give their statements. The next morning, police woke the camp family and arrested Dustin for murder. He can't have been that torn up about it if he went home and took a fucking nap. I know. So these kids... Rob and Elise appear to be the only ones in the situation that have real human souls. Right. Because if not for them, just like all the other confrontations that happen between these two social groups, it would have just gotten fucking ignored. Would have just been swept away. Like, the fucking paramedics or whatever would have come. They would have collected his body. Uh, there would have been some tears and some more fights, but it wouldn't have actually gotten fucking dealt with if Rob and Elise had not come forward and said, no, we saw some shit and we need to talk about it. Right, absolutely. They were the only fucking once. Everybody else was cheering. It's disgusting. The night of the murder, because it was a fucking murder, not an accident or an incident. The night of the murder, both Dustin and Brian had been drinking. Brian, who had been sharing beers with Jason earlier in the evening, presented with a blood alcohol content of 0.18 at the time of his death, which was twice the legal limit at the time, so he was definitely on one. But drinking is habitual for the punk scene, so it's possible. Like, I mean, if I had a 0.18, I'd still be a person. I'd probably be dead. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> when Dustin's caddy was searched, police discovered a mostly empty case 
case of beer and an almost empty bottle of whiskey. So both boys were inebriated at the time. In Camp's initial statement, he claimed to have been alone in the car, but police had already taken the statements of Rob Mansfield and Elise Thompson, both of which were damning to Camp's own version of events. He insisted to police that he had not targeted Brian, but rather that he drove his car toward him in an attempt to protect a friend that was being attacked by Brian, and that as the car drew closer, Brian slipped on the ice and ended up underneath the caddy. He just just he just he just slipped and uh it's a series of unfortunate events that's all it fucking was mm. obviously right i mean that's why everybody was cheering like oh yeah oh yeah accidents. he slipped on the Woo-hoo! ice that's what happened Ugh. god at trial there was a clear division in the community just visibly in the courtroom dustin's side of the courtroom represented the clean-cut christian values of the majority well-dressed and firmly supportive of the teenage boy sitting silently at the defense table i need you to know that like did you surely to god you did but did you ever watch fairly odd parents yes i need you to know (laughs) that all of the people on dustin's side of the fucking courtroom i'm imagining as doug dimodome oh my god oh no let me let me let me look up a picture of him really quick (gasps) he wears a white hat oh get him we're getting a picture of him doug dimodome (laughs) you know what this is the defense lawyer i knew it boom (laughs) defense lawyer stand in stock picture found we don't even need getty images here we go goddamn right boom <laughs> oh my god there's just a- get doug dimodome of the dimsdale dimodome uh, the third fucking image of him in the first of all there's a random image of trump in here <laughs> <laughs> second the third image in the search is doug dimodome dabbing <laughs> Doug Dimadam. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, no. Well, all right. So, uh-uh. <laughs> at trial. So we're at trial now. Uh, on the other side of the aisle were Mike and Betty Denneke, behind whom sat rows of local punks, their hands joined, tearful and stoic throughout the proceedings. When Jason took the stand to recount his memory of holding his brother in the snow while he died, their friends wept openly in the courtroom. The prosecution presented a strong case. In his opening statement, prosecutor John Coyle said, quote, We believe that the evidence will convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that this was not an accident, that this was not justified, and that the defendant intentionally and no murdered Brian Dennecke. And I'm really glad that he really went after the word murdered because I feel sometimes like even killed isn't enough of a gut punch for some people. So I think it's important in cases like this to make sure that we're using the word murdered as often as possible because it displays clear intent and there was clear fucking intent in this case. Yeah. Of the compelling evidence he presented, most jarring was that Dustin Camp never slowed down, never applied the brake, never turned the wheel as he approached and inevitably struck Brian, and that Brian remained conscious as he was crushed against the median, suffering a full severance of the spine, several crush injuries, and that his collarbone was completely separated from his shoulder. I don't like it. I know. I, I When I read that part, I my bad shoulder, my AC separated shoulder, just, it went, oh, no. Oh, God. Yes. Mm, like, like right now, it's even sore and clicking. Like, as I read this, it's like, no. Uh... Or maybe it's going to rain soon. We don't know. So, <laughs> <We're old>. <laughs> <laughs> in his closing arguments, he said, quote, Our young people on both sides of this aisle in our community need to be told by the 12 of you that what you do carries consequences, whoever you are, no matter what you look like, no matter how you dress. I don't expect you to enjoy sending this young man to prison, however long you send him for. 
I expect you to do it with a tear in your eye and your heart in your throat. President John Kennedy said, we do things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I ask you to do the hard thing. I ask you to send a message to this community that all young people, all of them, will suffer the consequences of their actions and that you are holding Dustin Camp unconditionally responsible for the death of Brian Dennehy. God damn right. So he was... Is fucking after it. Unfortunately, defense attorney Doug Dimmadome, uh, <laughs> Warren L. Clark, was ready to respond. In his own closing arguments, he said, quote, This is not a case of diversity or tolerance or judging people by the way they dress. This case is about a gang of young men who choose a lifestyle designed to intimidate those around them, to challenge authority, and to provoke a reaction from others. End quote. Oh, well, then in that case, murder is totally okay. Here's the thing about just that one piece of his statement is that he mounts his argument on this is not a, a case of diversity or tolerance, but the next things that I'm going to talk about that he did are a complete antithesis to what he just claimed that this isn't about. Um, so that, and also saying uh, intimidate those around them, challenge authority, provoke a reaction from others. All the fuck this guy is doing, if, if those words had come out of one of the punk kids' mouths instead, like, this is our aesthetic, is to, is to challenge authority, to provoke a reaction, it wouldn't be completely unfactual a thing to say. But he is framing it in, with so much vitriol that it's like, these these terrible, disgusting, murderous hooligans running wild in the streets with their crazy hair and their crazy music. Doug Dimmadome does not approve. They probably dance, too. <gasps> what? Hoodlums. What? <sighs> Kimmy, don't, don't, don't fuck <laughs> me up, okay? Uh, Women showing ankles and whoa, shit. Whoa, whoa. I know, man. I know, but it's real life. Whoa. You're out here showing- Hashtag real life. <laughs> you're out here showing your lower ankle to every Tom, Tom, and other Tom in town. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag references. Okay. So, <laughs> he asserted that the punks arrived to Western Street that night as part of, quote, a conspiracy that was put into play to kill and maim these high school students. Dustin had no time to think or ponder. He had to take immediate action, and he took it. And if he had to live it over again, he would do it again. That's disgusting. That is a terrible fucking defense attorney, first of all. Do not put words in my mouth. Uh, I have never in my life heard something so ridiculous as the phrase, and if he had had to live it over again he would do it again from a defense attorney are you serious defending a murderer yes even. like well i mean i can i can see it in some instances not this one not not this one though this is not okay when you watch this movie because i feel like you're gonna just keep in mind that as they were playing the scenes of this defense attorney spinning his bullshit we were looking at each other like oh my god i can't believe they wrote that into the script that's disgusting that's so over the fucking top what are they trying to do do we need to vilify this or villainize this kid anymore i mean he's obviously guilty this is overkill no it's exactly what the fuck this disgusting asshole said in real life so when i found out that that was a real ass quote that they just typed in the script and said here doug dimadome read this I was like, I can you imagine? Ugh, it gets worse. But okay, now look, we can't. He's not worthy of being Doug Dimmadome. Okay, no, he, no, he's not. I, so you I, know what? You're I like right. Doug Dimmadome. Do you know what? That's fair. He's he's evil, Doug Dimmadome. All right, he's like his evil twin, like from the evil universe. Yes, evil it, evilness. Yes, so he wears a black suit with a a white tie. All right, because that's how evil twins work, right? They just invert the colors. Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> so. 
With every witness, with every evidence exhibit, Clark painted a picture for the jury of a violent, troubled young man who wanted nothing more than to undo the simple, wholesome sensibility of the community of Amarillo. Among his witnesses, he called Brian's former scout troop leader, the asshole you went off on earlier in the episode. Ugh. God. He recalled the argument that he'd had with Brian about his skateboard, saying, quote, I had never seen eyes so cold and dark. Oh my yeah. god. Yes. Yeah. He Fuck told me that guy. <laughs> he told me that I was a son of a bitch and that oh. he didn't need to be in my troop anyway, end quote. Well, he obviously fucking didn't. Yeah, so this is, he's recounting an <sighs> argument that he had with a 13-year-old boy about a fucking skateboard and he is painting him with the same brush that was used to paint Ted Bundy. It's disgusting. You're making me very mad. I know. I'm sorry. It, thanks, I'm gonna thanks, need Nate. some ice cream. Thanks, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> A police officer was also called to the stand and instructed to hold up several items in an obscene exhibition of every piece of bloodstained clothing that Brian had been wearing that night. From his leather jacket to his combat boots as well as a photograph of Brian with his mohawk prominently featured. So they're holding these up in order to characterize what kind of person he was literally based on the thread on his skin. And they are holding up bloodstained pieces of fucking clothes and saying, look at what this monster was wearing. Don't look at the blood part. Look what he was wearing. He's a hooligan. In front of his parents. Ugh. I know. So... Clark, Cl like, I need you to know that if I could smoke pot right now, I would be smoking all of the pot. Every this pot? This is fucked up. Every single marijuana. Would you be- I would be smoking them. Would you be injecting marijuanas? I would, I would in fact need to inject at least five marijuanas. I would be- To get over this. I would be freebasing all of the pots. <sighs> this- <sighs> Sponsored just, by Reynolds Rep. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I fucking- I need you to hurry up and finish this. I know. I'm sorry. We're getting there. Fuck. So Clark called the, the punks thugs and goons and twisted the dictionary definition of the word punk to be a clear signifier of their dangerous otherness, as opposed to the legitimate explanation of why punks deliberately adopted a moniker that means worthless. We did that on purpose. The fact he's using it, he's, and I say us because us, he's using it against us in a fucking murder trial where a, a, boy a teenage boy got run the fuck this it's just i don't know how gross a person can be all at once it's just, he's he's almost worse than dustin camp now look i don't i don't really know how much how much we can really blame the defense attorney for doing what he was doing he was trying he was trying to incite a reaction from the fucking jury he was doing his fucking job okay i know that but that doesn't make it okay i want actually, i mean i know it's still really fucking shitty and i want to vomit in my mouth a little bit but i need both of them to be thrown into a fiery chasm from whence they cannot return. That's fair. Okay. So, uh, he, quote, What Dustin Camp faced out there, he says. What? What? Was a Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Go. Go ahead. Here we go. Here we go. Quote, What Dustin Camp faced out there was a mean drunk with a weapon. Somewhere in the infinite processes that make a boy into a man. Something happened to Brian Denneke. His manner of death was unfortunately the end result of his choices over the last six years prior to his death. You could even argue that he was destined to die the way he did. He was a violent individual, and it took violence on Dustin's part to put an end to the further violence and to save an innocent life. Let this boy go home and restore him to his family, because he did the right thing. I mean... I'm gonna let you marinate on that for I a can't. second. I I can't.
After three hours of deliberation, the jury did just that, and they sent they sent Dustin Camp home with his family with a conviction for voluntary manslaughter and a sentence of ten years probation and a ten thousand dollar fine to be waived pending good behavior. That's disgusting. The verdict predictably divided the community even more than the trial itself. Many citizens were sorely disappointed and openly disgusted. Perhaps most of all, Elise Thompson, who said, "Quote a lot of." people tried to defend him, but you cannot defend what he did. Elise suffered severe depression following the night of Brian's death, and she said, I didn't feel like I should be alive. I felt so guilty. I ran those moments over and over again in my mind, trying to figure out what I could have done different. In an act of rebellion that I would have stood up and fucking cheered for, Elise took the stage at graduation to deliver her valedictorian speech and said, quote, On that evening, a boy lost his life, and with him a part of many people died. Nothing else I have experienced has so greatly molded who I am and what I think. I hope its message can penetrate your heart. She spoke openly of the events of that night to an assembled crowd of 5,000 people, while students, teachers, and parents alike shifted uncomfortably in their chairs. She went on to encourage her classmates to see beyond their social divides, saying, quote, So I challenge you and me, all of us, to break through the stereotypes with which you may have been raised, I challenge each one of us to see the art, the beauty of humanity in others. So, fuck yeah, Elise Thompson. Punk rock. So, oh, an Amarillo Globe news poll said that 74% of those polled believed that the punishment did not fit the crime, and backlash was so intense that the judge sealed the names of the jurors to protect them from potential harm. For the punk scene, the verdict was the final word in how the football-worshipping community really felt about people who just didn't fit, affirming what they had known to be true all along, that some kids were worth more than others. Though there was sympathy after the verdict, the scene felt that it was too little too late, when their sympathy had been so sorely needed when they were being routinely victimized by Amarillo's more celebrated children. In the aftermath, the 8th Street house closed down, shows became sparse, local punks drifted away from the scene or moved on completely to other cities where the scene was not so steeped in loss. An older punk named Dan Kelso, who had once worked with Brian, said, quote, Brian was the candle burning the fastest and brightest. People gravitated toward him. He was the face of the scene here. He was visible, smiling, standing tall. When he was killed, part of these kids died too. Dustin Camp never served a day in jail for what he did to Brian Denneke, but he would later serve five years for parole violations from 2001 to 2006 so woo brian denneke's value that doesn't that doesn't fucking count i know that doesn't no, no i know i know i agree i mean at least fucking brock turner spent three months Woof. <coughs> hashtag affluenza uh <laughs> so uh we're almost at the end bear with me just let me get through this all right man <laughs> okay Brian Dennehy's valuable legacy of acceptance, community, and passion for the punk scene continues to be revisited in the media. Following his death, his story was featured on Lisa, Dateline NBC, 2020, NPR, the MTV documentary Criminal, Punks vs. Preps, a City Confidential episode called Amarillo, Texas, High School Hit and Run, and was highlighted in a discussion by Marilyn Manson at the Disinfo Conference in 2000, which is featured prominently in the 2018 movie Bomb City, which is a loose but equally upsetting retelling of the last weeks of Brian Dennehy's life. His case has also been the inspiration for discussing a broader scope for crime bias, opening avenues for the inclusion of issues beyond the obvious constructs of things like skin color, religious association, or sexual orientation, so in the shorthand hate crimes. In 2007, to mark 10 years since his death, 
Tribute concerts were held across the country, I think it was 25 individual concerts, to raise profit for the National Organization for Parents of Murdered Children, as well as other anti-prejudice causes. So not a dime went back into the pockets of the people doing this. It all went to charity. Lastly, several bands and artists have written tribute songs about Brian, including 15, The Code, The Undead, Dropkick Murphys, Against All Authority, Total Chaos, Career Soldiers, The Swellers, Hamill on Trial, and Christopher Owens. In the end, though loss of life is always traumatic to friends and family, Brian's death quantified the nature of a larger and much more devastating loss. The loss of precious ambition in the face of cultural adversity and the immeasurable deficit that is left behind when young, passionate beacons of generosity, integrity, and hope are brutally extinguished. That is that is the story of the death of Brian Theodore Denicky. Well, I'm just going to go slip my wrist now. Thanks, Nate. <laughs> oh, dude! After after the movie ended, Karen and I didn't really say anything. We just kind of sat there staring at the screen. And then we looked at each other and said, um, so I'm, I'm going to go die now. And then as we were saying goodnight to each other, she's like, yeah, I'm going to go put a bullet in my brain. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've been looking at my ceiling fan and I think it'll hold me. So, uh, I'm going to take a whack at that. And, uh, <sighs> thanks, Nate. I need a cigarette it's, is what I'm going to do. It's. Okay. I'll I'll be fucking back. I'll be back. Well, now that I had to smoke about five packs of cigarettes simultaneously to to fucking deal with that. I know. Uh, we're we're back now. I'm so sorry. Um, fuck, fuck you. Um, I, I know. Fuck I, Dustin Camp. I, fuck and Dustin fuck Camp. Nate. Fuck Dustin Camp. Yeah, that was God. I I don't I, I don't have words. I've it, true crime stories very seldom actually hit home for me. Like I can appreciate when things are just organically devastating, but this this one, I just we're I was making we're making jokes about like I'm gonna go kill myself because that movie was so sad. But that's just the human condition of trying to veil the fact that you legitimately want to be dead for a minute after hearing something yeah. that disgusting. <sighs> I just can't because it here like. And I'm sure that I'm not the first person who ever said it. I'm sure that every person that was friends with him said it. But why did it specifically have to be Brian? This, like, legitimate fucking huge inspiring figure in, you know, a scene that is already so, you know... Well, I mean, not just that, but, like, why why did Dustin have to target Brian specifically anyway? Like, I get that they had this ongoing beef in general, Brian, with, with the jocks, but, like... There were so many others there. What the fuck was going on with that? I, I read in one one version of events that at one point as many as 15 people were seen beating on Brian at one time. So I, I kind of think that what maybe happened f- forensically was that because uh, Brian was described as being in the fetal position at one point because he was beaten, being beaten so badly. So I tend to think that maybe like he was kind of doing that thing where you dance away from a fight just by a few feet, just like catch your breath and like fucking recover so you can dive back in. And so like maybe he was just physically a little bit separated. He was like that fucking that odd gazelle on the fringe of the herd and the lion's like, I'm gonna pick you. I just maybe because by all accounts, it didn't sound as though Brian went looking for trouble or had any sort of specific personal fucking beefs with anybody. Right. I just, least of all Dustin Camp, who was just some random fucking failure who couldn't even make the varsity team. That's right. I went there. I just, I can't. I just, I just can't. Please tell me a fun ghost story. 
I don't I don't fucking have one. Oh god, what do you have? Is it a sad ghost story? <laughs> no, it's not sad. It's not it's not sad at all. Okay. But it's not it's not funny. Like okay. is it gonna we're make not me gonna, feel better? I don't know. Okay. I I well, hope so. I'm gonna try to inject as much joke as I can. Okay. Many jokes. <laughs> Proceed, please. <laughs> All right. So, like, do you remember when we were pretty much ghost hunters? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, story for another episode, but 100%, we, we used to basically be ghost hunters. Oh, yes. In our own teen quite, kind of quite so. way. We were fucking experts. So, do you remember when we used to discuss attachments? Like, not quite possessions, but more like gum on the shoe yeah yeah like negative energy entity just kind of hooks onto you and is like sapping all your happy yeah sure or they make you sleep for 12 hours so that they can possess your friends and move your shoes yeah story for another time <laughs> but yes <laughs> uh so in jewish mythology they have something similar called a dibbic oh okay yes yes <laughs> okay this is gonna make me feel better Okay, good. Proceed, go. So, <laughs> so the name Dybbuk uh, comes from the Hebrew word for cling or adhere. Mm -hmm. uh, also, attach. See what I did there? Oh. Ah. <laughs> so a Dybbuk is, mythologically speaking, a malicious possessing spirit that's believed to be the soul of a deceased individual. Mm -hmm. Very much like the ghosts in the sixth sense, hashtag spoilers, Ooh. oftentimes a dibic is said to leave once a specific goal has been reached or it's been helped in some sort of way. Okay. Apparently, there's also a positive form of a dibic called an ibber, which it's just a positive attaching spirit. And they always ask for permission before Aww. attaching or possessing. So, like, I was talking to Sam about it earlier. So he was like, so they issue a formal letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to whom it may De concern. Dearest sir or madam. <laughs> okay, so let's pretend just for a few minutes that you're some sort of Jewish wizard and you happen to capture yourself a Dybbuk. What are you going to do with it? You can't really release it into the wild. That would be that would be you bad. Know what and I also would do, very rude. Please tell you me. Know, I I would uh, I would procure some sort of uh, container, perhaps in a cube shape and with perhaps like hinges, so as I might open it and then. So you mean like a cabinet, and perhaps? Then, oh, oh, oh! Uh, <laughs> and then so I, basically, so basically, it would be <laughs> <laughs> basically uh, dibics are like fucking boggarts and you just throw them in boxes somewhere. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I see what Blah. you did there. <laughs> so a Dybbuk box, generally speaking, is a box, very specifically a wine box, that holds a boggart or a Dybbuk, whatever <laughs> you want to call them. They're common in the Jewish faith to protect families from the possessing spirits. They're so common, in fact, that if you run a very quick search on eBay for Dybbuk box, <gasps> it returns over a thousand listings. Are you fucking serious? I can buy a Dybbuk box with a real ass Dybbuk in it? Let me get there. Okay. So if you also look it up on YouTube, you'll see hundreds of YouTubers claiming to have purchased a Dybbuk box more often than not from the dark web. And so now they're cursed. 
However, it's all bullshit. Oh. Every bit of it is fucking bullshit. Now, let me tell you why. There aren't a shit ton of Dybbuk boxes that exist in the world. There was one. A single Dybbuk box. Uh, Nowhere in the world did Dybbuk box exist until 2001 when a man named Kevin Manis listed it up for sale on eBay. So uh, did this man look anything like Negan from The Walking Dead? Uh, No. He did not. Did, did Okay. That's a good movie, by the way. The, I the, know. I the, really like that movie. The Possession 2012. Go look it up. Uh, I mean, I've seen it. So what is his... Kevin? Kevin Manis. Kevin yes. Manis, the only certified Divic box. That is correct. Continue. Now, obviously, it's possible that this method of storing Dybbuk's for rainy days, I guess, may have been in existence for a while, but probably not. Otherwise, there would be more mention of it in Jewish mythology, and it's nowhere to be found. So that's bullshit. So anyway, let me actually get on to my fucking story. Oh, sorry. So Kevin Manis has this Dybbuk box. All his information I'm about to tell you is actually according to his original eBay listing for the box. So in September of 2001, Kevin attends an estate sale in Portland, Oregon for a recently deceased woman who lived to be 103. Suspicious already. I know. So while he's at the estate sale, he purchases the Dybbuk box and he's approached by the granddaughter of the deceased woman. While he's talking to her and they're shooting the shit, the granddaughter tells him that she is of Polish descent. She was born and raised in Poland. She married and had family by the time the Nazis occupied Poland and her and all of her family, so parents, siblings, her husband, their two sons, and their daughter were sent to a concentration camp. She survived the camp by escaping and somehow making her way to Spain. The woman was the only surviving member of her family. Oh no. Yeah, so that's that's sad. Once she got to Spain, that is where she acquired the Dybbuk box. Fucking somehow. Magic, I guess. And it was one of the very few items that she ended up bringing with her when she immigrated to the States. Okay. While he was talking to the granddaughter, she recalled asking about the Dybbuk box, which apparently was kept just out of reach in her grandmother's sewing room. And after she asked what was in the box... The old woman would spit three times, and she said the words Dybbuk and Kesselim. I did a lot of research into trying to figure out what Kesselim means, and it may be Turkish. It may be what? It may be Turkish. Oh. Because there are a lot of Turkish words that start with the phrase Kes. Okay. That mean cut, but that's all I was able to find. Yeah, and especially Hebrew and Yiddish both are deep, deep cut, nuanced languages that I I can see how the internet would fail at least this once in giving you a solid (laughs) response. But that's, I can just see this. the internet. uh, Right? I can just see this old lady though, like, uh, (gasps) just like spinning in a circle. (laughs) Like, like, oh, oh, uh, like, uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, when he reveals the black spot and then. Yeah, and uh, they spit and then turn. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. Okay. (laughs) She spit between her fingers. Gross. I know, it's weird. Okay, so anyway, the girl was warned to never, ever open the wine box. The old woman actually asked to be buried with the box, but that was considered very unorthodox in Jewish burial tradition, so it didn't happen. When Kevin 
tried to give the box back, thinking it had too great a sentimental value. The granddaughter was like, "Mm -mm, no, man. (laughs) You bought it. We made a deal. (laughs) Final sale. It's yours. (laughs) All sales final. Here's your receipt. (laughs) Bye-bye. And uh, <laughs> I guess he tried to push the issue like, nah, man, it's fine. Like, it's your grandma's. Take it. She, like, the girl freaked out. She started crying and, like, kicked him off the property. Jesus. Yeah, she was like, no, dude, it's yours. Peace the fuck out. So Kevin owned a small furniture refinishing shop and ended up taking the box there and kept it in the basement. He was planning to refinish it and give it as a gift to his mother for her birthday. Even after hearing all of this? Well, yeah. I mean, he didn't think there was anything wrong with the box. He didn't think there were Uh. demons. He didn't know anything about a dipic. Like, it was just a fucking wine box. Like, yeah, whatever. It's cool looking. Mama like it. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. So, you know, it's fine. It's all fine. So, anyway, he takes the box to his shop, tosses it in the basement, and then opens the shop for the day and leaves to run some errands. He's got a salesperson there. So shortly after he leaves to run the errands, he gets a call from his salesperson who is in complete hysterics, screaming that there is somebody in the workshop breaking glass and just swearing all over the place. Just fuck shit cockdam. All over the goddamn place, right? <laughs> Was it George Carlin? It very well might have been. George Carlin is the Dybbuk. That's- <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the truth. <laughs> we cracked you the case. It here. <laughs> so anyway, his salesperson is calling him and like screaming and crying like, oh my God, there's somebody swearing in here. I can't deal with it. <laughs> so he's asking her, What's going on? Like, how did they get in? Blah, blah, blah. She doesn't fucking know. But apparently whoever was in the shop locked the gates and the exit door. So the sales lady was locked inside the shop. She was freaking the fuck out. Jesus. So he tells her to call the police and then his cell phone dies. Ugh. Thanks, Kevin. Just the fucking way. Like, charge your phone, man. You're you're going out on the town. Fucking charge your shit. Kevin is the worst. (sighs) Right. So he drives at speeds of like, a hundred miles per hour, he says, and makes it to the shop and finds his salesperson weeping and completely inconsolable in a corner in his office, just like fetal position, freaking the fuck out. And then he promptly gave her a well-deserved raise. Uh, well, she quit. She left and never came back. She was like, "I'm you go, man. girl." fuck out of there (laughs) right she's like i'm not i don't want anything to do with this i'm out man so he ends up going down into the basement to investigate what was going on and as soon as he hits the bottom stair he is hit with the really strong fragrance of cat urine oh no yeah you've had cats you know what that's like i have (laughs) cats and i hate them i know it fucking sucks cats are the worst you know what and just a quick sidebar they're doing this really uh precious adorable totally not ruining my life thing where just got a new cat and so my male cats are like fuck this new guy so they're not covering their poops because they're trying to yeah they're trying to exert dominance by not covering up their poops which is a real ass cat thing so listeners if your cat doesn't cover his poop he's that's basically him saying fuck you yeah pretty much he's saying i'm the boss around here and so now artemis is coming into the room to only use their cat box so that he can poop and not cover it so (sighs) it's this one cat box with three male cats just like (laughs) fuck you (laughs) uh, okay i'm sorry continue kevin cats are the fucking 
fucking worst. All right. So anyway, he goes in the basement. He's hit with a really strong scent of cat urine and finds that the lights aren't working. He can't switch that shit on. Upon further investigation, he finds out that all of the light bulbs have been smashed in their sockets. <laughs> Therefore, that was the glass that was breaking. So, whatever demon was in his basement was like, man, fuck these goddamn light bolts. Tired of this shit. You fucking suck everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so- Just crushing things. <laughs> So yeah, (laughs) destroyed the light bulbs. But there is nobody there. There was only one way in and out of the basement. There was nobody in the fucking basement. Yes. So demons. Yeah, the salesperson left. Never came back. To this day, apparently, or rather to the day that he fucking listed the goddamn box for sale, she has refused to discuss the events of that day. Also refused to go back to work. She's like, nah. Yeah. She's like, I'm, fucking I'm out. send me my W-2, don't talk to right? me ever again, goodbye. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> By the way, can I get a reference letter? <laughs> I was just about to fucking say that. So when what? he went How do you to... explain that? I'm sorry, to your next employer, how do you explain why did you leave your last job? Well, um... Demons. A fucking angry-ass Jewish ghost came out of a wine box and attempted to literally scare me to the grave, and I just thought it wasn't a good fit anymore professionally, and I wanted to move on with my career. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I, I hit a ceiling with my career <laughs> when demons happened. Oh, my God. Sorry okay. about it. Woof. So... When he finally got around to refinishing the box to give as a gift to his mother. By the way, he still hadn't connected the two things together. He still wasn't like, this is weird. It's just a box. What's whatever. Jesus Christ. So he starts to refinish the box and he opens it. Of course he does. Because duh. (sighs) What he finds inside the box is a 1928 wheat penny, a 1925 wheat penny, a lock of blonde hair, a lock of brown hair, a granite statue engraved and gilded with the word shalom, (laughs) a dried rosebud, a golden wine cup, and an iron candlestick with octopus legs, which is weird. That sounds awesome. But I mean, whatever. (laughs) Uh, He ended up removing all the items from the box and tried to return them to the estate, and they were like, nah, man, it's part of the package. You keep that shit. (laughs) That's yours. (laughs) So, after opening it, he ended up deciding not to actually finish it and he just ended up giving it a good cleaning some sprucing if you will he also noted while he was cleaning it and oiling it up and whatever a random hebrew inscription carved into the back of the box and he has no idea what it said so around the mother's birthday she went on a trip so he couldn't give her the box then when she got back they were supposed to go out to lunch and she ended up coming to the shop to meet him this was on halloween of that year because of course it was of of course it was. Yeah, duh. Mom goes to the shop to meet him so they can go out for lunch and he ends up giving her the wine cabinet prior to them leaving for lunch. He ends up leaving the room for a few minutes to make a quick phone call while she's inspecting the box and while he was gone, within just a couple of minutes, an employee starts screaming at him to come look at his mom because there's something wrong with his mom. Oh no. When he goes back out there, he sees his mother sitting in a chair next to the cabinet and her face is completely expressionless except there are tears streaming down her cheeks. He tries everything he can to get her to respond, but nothing's happening. Apparently, she suffered a massive stroke. Ah! 
And that stroke rendered her partially paralyzed and completely unable to speak. No. Yeah. No. 100%. Completely unable to speak. Wait, what did he do with the items in the Dybbuk box? Uh, he doesn't say. Oh, oh God, because he didn't just give his mom a box full of someone else's bullshit. He probably threw them away. Oh, my God. No, because the original items were included with the Dybbuk box. In the what, did he time. just put them in a fucking Ziploc bag? Uh, yes, there's a picture. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> Send me the picture. I hate everything. He killed his mom. It's, she's not dead. She had a fucking stroke. Jesus, hey, drama queen. Hey, she's basically fucking dead. God, no, she's not. She like, you just said she's like paralyzed and she can't respond. That doesn't mean basically dead. Uh, you know what? I, let's, let's pull people who have experienced that and are just like trapped in their fucked up bodies forever. Cause I think that they would have a dissenting opinion. Okay. Anyway, I'm probably just taking this stroke thing really personally because my mom suffered a massive stroke and she's not the same. So now whenever I hear about strokes, I'm like, well, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. For real. Okay, so he fucks his mom up. Yeah. After her stroke, she was only able to communicate through pointing at letters on like a board of letters. So like she was a human Ouija board. She was rendered into a Ouija board. Okay. Basically. When you say it that way, it makes it sound kind of cool, but also that's sad. It is incredibly sad. Yeah. So the day after she has her stroke, Kevin goes to visit her in the hospital and he asks her how she's doing. She ends up spelling out the word no gift. N-O-G-I-F-T. No gift. That's all she says. Don't, yeah, don't give me any anything else for the love of god <laughs> literally ever please a gift card to amazon.com that's it just right stop so thinking that she had forgotten that he had given her the wine box as a gift he reminded her and she responded with hate gift <laughs> <laughs> so basically fuck your gift i don't want it fuck you <laughs> yeah So he ends up taking the box back and still at this point, he's thinking nothing of any of these events. He's like, it's just a goddamn box. No correlation at all. He's a goddamn idiot. He takes the box back and then he gives it to his sister. His sister keeps the box for a week and then gives it back. She's like, nah, man. This is your box. Is he just gonna fucking kill off his whole family one by one? I mean, she didn't die. She gave the box back. She was complaining that the doors yeah, wouldn't stay closed. Know, so he's, she's like, he's I don't like want this. A, he's on a fucking mission. Also, he must not be very good at refinishing things because that wine box looks like it's in fantastic condition given his age. So if he fucked it up so the doors don't close, not only is he a reckless moron, but he's bad at his job. Well, see, that's one of the things that uh, is mentioned in the listing. The doors do not have a spring mechanism. So there's no reason the doors should be opening like that. He never experienced that issue with the box, ever. So... Well, because it wants its shit back. Uh, Right? He takes the box back after his sister had it for a week, and then he gives it to his brother. (laughs) He's just passing it around the family. His brother ends up keeping it for a week, and then his brother gives it back to him. Apparently, his brother's wife complained that it smelled like cat urine, and his brother thought that it just smelled like jasmine. (laughs) Smelled like jasmine. I'm sorry. Men are the worst. Men are the worst. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, keep going. So after he gets it back from his brother, he hands it off to his girlfriend. So his girlfriend keeps it for two days, two whole days. And finally, she's like, you know what? I don't want this fucking box. Please sell this box. Get rid of it. Sick of your shit, Kevin. Right? Fuck you, Kevin. So after... 
a couple of days, I believe, he ends up selling the box to a middle-aged couple. Mm-hmm. He said, a really nice middle-aged couple. After three days, he goes into work and sees the Dybbuk box sitting in front of his shop with a note that says, this has bad darkness. <laughs> so he took the box home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know when I whenever I get a note that says this is bad, I take the bad thing to my house. Oh god. That's where it, that's where it needs to be. I'm in literal pain right now. I hate this guy. He's stupid. <laughs> He's a goddamn idiot. So, I uh, hey, I have a question. Did you how expeditiously did you try to translate the Hebrew script on that uh tile inside the box? God, I'm going to be really honest with you. I just didn't. So, here's the thing. I just looked up the Hebrew alphabet to see if I could make any sense of it just from like the standard what the symbols make in terms of sound and they're all parts of the standard Hebrew alphabet. I found them immediately. So, I didn't want to write down the actual Hebrew symbols as transcribed in the box because I was afraid I'd curse myself by accident. I literally, Kimmy, my instinct is to write on my bare leg when we do this because I'm never wearing pants. And uh, it's the Pants Off podcast. And I almost, I like literally almost drew the first symbol Then I thought, wait, you know what? I don't like where the story is going. So let me just write all of this in English so it doesn't matter as much to like the grand scheme of the haunting. So I have the first symbol is uh, Samech. Uh, which is the symbol for S. The second one is Nun, the symbol for N. The third one is Lamed, the symbol for L. And the last one is Shin, the symbol for Sh, or a different S sound. And the Dybbuk box, so in Hebrew, as a lot, uh, as you'll often see with Arabic, they use um, dots correspondent to the placement of alphabetic characters to indicate a change in the nature of the sound the character is making. So like mm-hmm. lengthening and a into an A and so on and so forth. The Dybbuk box uh, script doesn't appear to have any accompanying dots, so I'm going to take them at their literal face value. But all that gives us is S N L shush. So snush. Like, are they are they initials? Like, I'm gonna dive a little deeper after we're done recording and see if I can get you a real translation. But I just wanted you to know that I'm on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> just don't write it anywhere. You will die. I have a friend with parents who are familiar with Hebrew. They went to real ass Hebrew school. Uh, so I, I might send it to her via the text and be like, I can't draw the characters for you because we might get cursed, but can you ask your parents what this spells? <laughs> anyway. So after he takes the box home, he starts having a recurring nightmare about this old, ugly hag beating the absolute piss out of him. Just beating him the fuck up. About a month prior to listing the box for sale on eBay, his brother and his brother's wife and his sister all ended up staying the night at his house for some reason. Like, sleepovers are fun, So I guess. just a support group for all the people he tried to murder with this box. Right. Maybe like an intervention like, bruh, get rid of the fucking box. Please, God in heaven. <laughs> so everybody's staying the night at his house the following day during breakfast his sister is sitting there talking about how she uh she was woken up with a nightmare and she starts describing the nightmare and everybody stops and they're like i had the same dream <gasps> and apparently it is the exact same nightmare that kevin had been having the entire time he had the box. Oh, God. He ends up asking his girlfriend if she ever had any nightmares and relaying the nightmare in question. And sure enough, she did in fact have the exact same nightmare during the time she had the fucking Dybbuk box. Oh, no. Okay. 
Following that episode, he started seeing shadowy figures running through his house all over the place. Visitors to his house were saying they were also seeing shadows, like just out of the corner of their eye, moving around. So he ends up storing the box in a storage unit. He ends up waking up one night to the smoke alarm in the storage unit going off. So he went out to check it out. There was no smoke, but there was cat urine smell. So naturally, he takes the box home because what else are you going to fucking do with it, right? You know what? At this point, at this point, take it home. Hey, home remedy. Uh, Combine a mixture of one part Bragg's brand with mother apple cider vinegar and two parts warm water and just douse that box down to get that fucking smell out. Because I got to tell you, cat urine evidently will follow you to the afterlife. And the only thing that gets the only thing that gets the smell out is apple cider vinegar with mother and water. So what he should have done, douse that shit down. I'm saying. Right? See? Just give it a dip, man. Just a quick dip. Yeah, I I will fuck up a dibbuk. Okay? <laughs> Oh, you're gonna be you're I, cursing oh yourself. Oh god, I got chills when I said that. I'm so sorry. I'm so I sorry. can't believe you I'm fucking so said that. Oh my god. Kevin takes the cabinet home and decides to do some internet research. Whilst researching, he ends up falling asleep and he's awakened to the feel and the smell of somebody breathing down his neck. No! Yes, ma'am. All up on his neck. So when he turns to see who's looking down his neck, he says he saw a huge shadowy thing loping down the hallway. No, fuck, don't fucking describe the manner of the moving. (laughs) I just, when you said lope, I saw it and now I want to cry. So anyway, he ends his listing by saying just the words, help me. No, no, he doesn't. He, yeah, he does. He does. So after sitting on eBay for quite a lengthy period of time, the box ends up being bought for $140 by some university student in Missouri who ended up keeping the box. I know, right? He ended up keeping the box for about eight months and then he relisted it, saying that a bunch of horrible shit was happening to him. I can't find any details on that. It was then bought by a museum director named Jason Haxton. Haxton wrote a book about all the terrible shit that happened to him, claiming a number of health problems, including bleeding from his eyeballs, no. choking on water, head-to-toe welts, and hives. Jeez, it's like that. It's like the, the plagues. God. Yeah, man. All of the plagues. He ended up consulting with rabbis to uh, figure out how to reseal the Dybbuk back into the box, which apparently was successful. He claimed to have hidden it in a super top secret location and said he was going to leave it there forever, blah, blah, blah. But then the whole story got super famous and then the the possession was made and then he ended up donating the box to that douchebag from Ghost Adventures in 2016. Uh, Zach. Zach ba- Baggins, Baggins, bag- Bagels. Baggins. I, I always think of it as Baggins. On, uh, and on that's, and that's why we drink, they call him Zach Bagel Bites. Uh, I hate him. <laughs> he's the reason I can't watch that show. Like, it's. I know, he's a douche. He is. Like, you just kind of look at him and you're like, God, I bet his name is Chad. Blech, Chad Chadison. Uh, right? God. See Zachary Chad. <laughs> <laughs> His name is fucking Kyle. Right? God, fuck you. 
Zach. God, it's just as bad. We just lost all of our Zach's, Chad's, and Kyle's. I don't think we had any. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So, yeah, that's the story of the Dybbuk box. Mm. So she's, she's, uh, she's resealed. Her Ziploc is firmly closed. In theory, yeah. Where's the box now? Uh, Zach Baggins has it in a museum. Oh, so he put it on display somewhere. Right, that's correct, yes. So it could possess everybody. Yeah, everybody who's in a fucking room with it, presumably. Right. That, that is, that's one of those things where I really, really, really want to figure it out. But also, I don't want to be anywhere the fuck near that thing. I mean... First off, remember the last time we tried to figure something out? <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, accidents happen, and uh, we figured it out in the end. Story for another time! Story for another time. God damn it. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I can, just, can we bow our heads in prayer? Light light the candles? Like, oh, God. I the, the Jewish faith is just so lush and interesting and has such fantastic... Uh, history to it so it's really fun to read about and look into and I'm not a religious person so I can do it from an academic point and I once had the dinner blessing memorized and I could sing it from from memory and so now whenever I get a chance I'm like oh let me show off that I learned a thing that I didn't have to that was a good story Kimmy you gave me full body chills I thought I was gonna giggle the whole time because I knew sort of what you were gonna talk about but now I feel deeply um haunted and afflicted and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have a good night yeah well you ruined my life so uh nate ruined your life yeah thanks nate thanks i don't know you but fuck you (laughs) he's gonna be so happy when he hears this episode (laughs) he was very excited to hear that i was gonna do this he was all about it he almost wanted to like guest star on the podcast but nate and i talk a lot so that would have gotten out of control but maybe someday Someday in the future, we'll let Nate come on and fucking tell you guys to watch other movies that will ruin your day. God, whatever. Uh, well, now you guys have two movie assignments. Please go forth and watch Bomb City, made in 2018, and The Possession, made in 2012. So if that you're you can sensitive get... and would rather your life not be ruined, just watch The Possession. That's, that's very fair. Because Bomb City will hurt your fucking feelings. I mean, to be fair, though, like, if you listen to this entire episode, like, your life is probably already ruined. I know. We're sorry about it. Uh, I didn't do it, so. (laughs) 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 This is all on you and Nate. Well, hey, guys. Uh, clean the cat box with apple cider vinegar and warm water. Legit. Don't talk to football players who have no manners. And wash your hands. That's my advice for today. Also, don't buy wine boxes from estate sales. No. Good job, Kimmy. We did it. Nailed it. And cut. You Had to Be There is researched, written, and hosted by these two bitches, Cheyenne and Kimmy. You can find our sources in the episode description and copies of visual materials and audio clips on our social media platforms. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do so is by leaving us a five-star review wherever you find this podcast. Make sure to follow or subscribe so you'll never miss a new episode. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash you had to be there pod, on Instagram at you had to be there pod, and on YouTube by searching for you had to be there podcast. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or if you have your own odd, frightening, or fun stories to tell, you can email us at you had to be there pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and don't forget when life gives you the creeps, don't panic. Aim for the dick if they've got one. Lock the door and burn some sage about it. <laughs>